may be boring, but his guests aren't. It's Al's Boring Podcast. Oh, hi there. Al Dukes here, and we're going to do things a little bit different this week on the podcast. My guest today is Mark Chernoff, but I did this in two parts because when I taped this earlier uh, or last week with Mark, we ended up talking for 90 minutes because he's had such a long career. And I didn't want to put up a 90-minute podcast because I thought you would all fall asleep to that. It's way too long to be sitting there listening to me talking. So I thought I would split it up into two parts. So this is part one. Part two will be coming next week. Part one really starts with uh, Mark Chernoff's uh, start at uh, on in rock radio, how he went from WNEW to K-Rock working with Howard Stern, and then how he was eventually uh, moved over to WFAN and working with uh, Imus, uh, Mike and Chris, Boomer and Carton, all that stuff. But in part one, I'll take you all the way up until Imus getting fired. And part two will focus on the hiring of Boomer and Carton, uh, Chris Russo leaving, and then a whole bunch of questions that I threw at him that you guys sent me on Twitter. So here is part one with my talk with Mark Chernoff, the program director over here at WFAN. Hi, Mark. Good morning, Al, or afternoon or evening. Now, you have a lot of titles here. Um, I was looking on your email. You are a WFAN program director. Correct. And then what are your other titles here with the with the company, the CBS Radio? Uh, vice President of Pro Sports Programming for CBS Radio. So that's for the country. Yes, and also Vice President of Programming for the New York Cluster. All right, so you'll oversee all of the CBS sports stations in the country? Yes, I'm one and of two people that one has of that two. title, yes. All right. And you've been here this <laughs> this run of WFAN for how long? Since 1993. And you were here previous to that another With like the company? Well, yes. just like you were you've been at uh FAN since 93. Yes. But did you go away from FAN for a little Not while? Not at all. I've, I've oh, you've always been FAN. other stations in New York for CBS at the same time, but never oh, giving see. up the job at FAN. So your job uh when you first got into radio, you were a rock guy. Correct. I was. You were a rock jock. I was a rock jock. Well, it was even not rock. I was working at um, adult contemporary formats, little radio station up in Newton, New Jersey, Sussex County, called WNNJ. Uh, I worked there part-time. We had an FM station that flipped from beautiful music back in the 70s to country. So I was the morning man at uh, the FM station of WNNJ, which was WIXL. We were in XL country. XL Country. Yes, I did that. Played country music for about six months, then moved over to the AM. Back in the 70s, AM was still, in most, especially in small markets, probably bigger deal than the FM station. So it was actually better to be on the AM in those days. And there, was there a time when you were being a rock jock where you felt like my career would probably be safer if I got into management? Or yeah, programming well, versus yeah, being an on-air yes. guy? I was a program director at WNNJ and WIXL for a while. I got a part-time job at a rock station, WDHA. The Rock of Dover. Dover. The, well, the Rock of North Jersey. Oh. We call this, then we decided the Rock of New Jersey. Yes, uh, we were licensed to Dover. Um, we were in a little house on Route 10 back in those days. But I was the program director and morning man, and, and um, I was there for about seven and a half years, and the morning man probably for the last six and a half, as well as being the PD. And then what happened where you decided to get off the air and, and go into the management side? Well, I, 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 I did double duty, or maybe more than that. I, I also cleaned the building once in a while. Well, actually, that was in Newton. I did that as part of my job. But um, I got that job as the music director at WNEW-FM. 
in New York. And I That's sit- a big jump, right? Going it, from it a station in New Jersey, NEW, legendary station. Yeah, DHA was a solid, very good um, rock station. But again, New Jersey, in essence, much smaller market. I mean, the signal got into New York and does, but we were not considered a New York station. But um, I was, uh, you know, I guess kind of lucky and, and got hired at, um, at NEW as the music director uh, Charlie Kendall was the program director. Scott Muni was the operations manager and in charge. And uh, when I got hired, I had decided, okay, I'm kind of done as a jock. I don't need to be a jock anymore. I've heard enough Led Zeppelin tunes, you know, in my headphones, and was, you know, felt like I was starting to lose some hearing. But whatever. Um, so I got hired as the music director. But Charlie said, no, 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 I still want you to do air shifts. So while I was at NEW for about four years, a little more than four years, I did about 100 air shifts a year while I was there. and had I, I still had kind of fun doing it, but I felt my career was more in management than it was going to be as a jock. Now, what does a music director do at, the, at a station like NEW? Do you pick which songs and how often they go in rotation and that sort of thing? Uh, in essence, yes. Um, we used to have record people come in, record promoters, you know, promoting their stuff, whether, whether it was Columbia, Capital, A&M, Arist, all the various labels. They'd come in and pitch their wares, and I would get music sent to me. And it was really kind of my job as the music director to pick out what I thought would be the hits um, for our format, which is album rock. And who were the big artists then? Well, in the 80s, I mean, it was still a lot of the artists that you were thinking of, Led Zeppelin, The Stones, the individual Beatles. I mean, John Lennon had already passed, but McCartney, George Harrison, um, you had... um, you know, I'm just trying to think. Every Led Zeppelin was Bruce kind of Springsteen. Dead. Springsteen was huge. The Stones obviously were yeah. still big. Jethro Tull was still big. Um, then you had the n- newer ones coming along, like the Billy Idols. Um, I'm trying to think some of the British groups that were big. You know, these well, fine young cannibals. I mean, it just. I mean, I I, I think of it. The, there was also the hair bands. The Bon Jovi's were starting to make some noise. Tom Petty was, you know, starting to reach superstardom. But there were still guys like Dylan was still around making albums. And would the record company say, oh, we're thinking this as a single, or you got to pick that stuff out? Uh, Most of the time in those days, they still had their ideas. Um, I will tell you, though, there was a group, and they're they're still around. They still play the Smithereens. Um, I remember getting, it was on Enigma Records before they had signed a deal with Capitol. Uh, It was a soundtrack to some movie that no one's ever heard of, and I can't even remember it, but there was a song called Blood and Roses. And... I tried to listen. In those days, you didn't get a 1,000 records a week. You got 20, 30, maybe sometimes less, depending on what time of the year and the month it was. So I really prided myself on trying to listen to everything. And I heard the song Blood and Roses, and I remember walking into Charlie Kendall's office. I said, I think this is a hit. And he's looking at me like, nobody's ever heard of them. And I said, well, you know, we're WNEWFM. We're bigger than that. We're a rock station that people care about, and we're a leader. And I think I'll stick my neck out on this one. And I did. We played it. Eventually got into what was our, considered our A rotation, which maybe we played as a current song four or five times a day. Caught on. The band did a lot of stuff for us. Now, they're local in essence, or were for a long time, to the North Jersey, New York area, because that's where the band came from. But they did have a bunch of hits, and they, they've done fine. They've played uh, stuff for us, like they did one of the uh, two of the uh, Belmar shows that we do with Francesa. And uh, they're, you know, a fun band. And when people wonder, like, oh, Led Zeppelin has a ton of great songs, how come we only hear these four or five on the radio, even <laughs> still? Why is that? Well, I think the key to, to, 
album rock became formatted. When album rock first started and, and was under the name really progressive rock, it was new, especially in the mid to late 60s. First of all, there were a lot of less uh, stations that were fewer stations that were playing rock music. And I think in those early days of progressive rock, people did play what they wanted. There was a consultant na named Lee Abrams who came along, and what he created was something called the superstar format. And what it was was the bigger acts and the better songs. So people started doing music testing, which certainly wasn't done in the 60s, but by, probably by the mid-70s it was starting to become prevalent with album rock stations. I mean, the top 40 stations, I think, always tested songs in whatever manner that they did their research, how many things were being sold at record stores, what people liked when they sat in a group and focus groups and listened to stuff. But now it was becoming a big deal at album rock. So what happened was when you played Led Zeppelin, everybody loved Stairway to Heaven. Everybody loved Whole Lot of Love and everybody loved Ramble On because not all of them were singles. It didn't have to be a single. But as you tested these songs and they scored very well, you tried to play the songs that people like. And I think one of the keys... If you're a, a real music buff, you're not happy because you want to hear all these different songs, but that's what you had a turntable for or a CD player or whatever your mode of listening was back then to listen to it at home. But on the radio, you had to learn to play the hits. And even somebody as well-known and popular and progressive as Scott Muni always said to me, a hit is a hit is a hit. And play the hits. And no matter what format you are, even in a talk format, it kind of holds too. You talk about the hot topics, you play the best songs. If you're playing them and you're a disc jockey or you're a program director, you get sick of them because you hear them all the right. time. If you're a listener and a listener may listen to a radio for 10 or 15 minutes at a time, they expect to hear the hits. So that's what you have to do. Now, I always felt as a program director on the music side that you wanted to also spice things up. But if you're going to do that, you play a hit something to spice things up, and another hit. And the hit could be something from the library, or it could be something current if it's a big song. I try to use that same analogy when people call in <laughs> FAN want to talk hockey. I said, that's not a hit record, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, hockey is not one of the major topics, but it is a topic of interest, especially when you get to the Stanley Cup playoffs, and especially when you get to the Stanley Cup finals, right. and especially when it's local. Yes. Put all those things together, and hockey becomes a hot topic, but the rest of the year, it's a lot tougher topic. Yeah. So you're at NEW for a while there, mm -hmm. and then how do you, how do they, how does the company decide <coughs> Mark Chernoff, the music guy, could do sports? Like well, that's a whole different. Seems like that a whole wasn't different the direct, thing. Uh, you know, liftoff to here. I was at NEW until 1989. The company had changed ownership twice, and um, at that point, in 1989, they had brought some people in from a company called Legacy, and they decided they wanted their own people there. Um, we had the highest ratings we had ever had at the radio station, and that isn't to necessarily pat myself on the back because the station had also had some very high ratings with Charlie Kendall and others, but I was pretty proud of what we were and how we were doing. But these new people, they wanted their own people in there. So I was, and, and I was pretty much told, if you don't want to do things our way and you know, blah, 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 maybe you're not the right person. That was as good as saying goodbye. Right. And they had let go of the general manager, the chief, even the chief engineer, <clears throat> the sales manager. So I felt like I was on the list of all these other people. Not rightly so, but that's what happens in life sometimes. <clears throat> so I decided maybe it'd be better if I started looking around. So I called Tom Chisano, who was the general manager at K-Rock, 
saying, yeah, I don't know how things are going here. He was nice enough. He met with me. And he said, I don't have any openings. Sorry. But he said, um, do you ever meet Mel Karmazin, who runs Infinity Broadcasting? I said, yeah, I've run into him because I knew he had something to do with NEW a bunch of years ago. He said, why don't I set up a meeting with Mel? We did. We met over at the plaza. I'm never so nervous. I must have lost 10 pounds in sweat just sitting with Mel. I was so nervous. But it actually was fine. And uh, Mel said, you know, don't have any openings. I don't make the decisions. Ha ha. Um, but, you know, uh, you can let us know if, you, if you're ever interested. Like, we might have an opening in Washington. And I'm going, Washington, no thank you. Sounds like a nice place, but not interested. Well, I get a call from somebody at uh, this legacy broadcasting that some executive by the name of Doug Brown wants to meet with you next Tuesday. Okay, at 6 p.m. I said, okay, somebody wants to meet with me at night. That's not good. He wasn't inviting me to dinner. So I called Mel's assistant named Terry, who he uh, later married Terry, which is not relevant to the story, but I'm just Interesting a little note. background. Yes. Um, and um, I said, uh, you know, Mel had suggested maybe I could meet Ken Stevens, who's the general manager down in Washington. So I guess I'd be interested. They set up the meeting. Ken flew me down. It was WJFK was the radio station. I had about the best meeting I've ever had with anybody. Ken and I really hit it off just right away. Went out to lunch. We talked for hours. I want you to be my program director. I said, well, I'm still at NEW. I don't feel good that about staying here because I don't think they're going to keep me. He said, well, then just leave. But it's New York. But I had two little kids. My wife was teaching. It's like it's hard to just pull yourself away. But as it got closer to Tuesday... When I had this meeting scheduled, I knew that they were going to say something nasty to me. And I called Ken and I said, let me make it through this night, but I'm, I'm taking your job. I just want to, I don't want to quit. I, if they want to get rid of me, they can get rid of me because if I have severance and stuff like that, I don't want to be the one to quit. Yeah. And if they don't, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. Well, they basically <clears throat> didn't find me. They said, well, we'd like you to stay if you want to stay, but here are the conditions, and these conditions were ridiculous. I said, you don't want me to stay. And they even said, well, not really, because the new company wouldn't give me a contract, and I had had a contract with the old company, Metropolitan, which had been Metromedia before that. So I um, basically said, then I'm done. I, and I called Ken before I left the building and before I got a, pay, a check because they were going to cut for me and stuff like that, and I said, I'm taking your job. So... The next day, Radio and Records, when they printed uh, or the, did their stories Wednesday for Thursday, it said Mark Chernoff to take program director job at WJFK. So I got a nice positive story about it instead of, you know, you know, done right, it any fired, yeah. And Carl Hirsch, who was like the running, um, running legacy for Bob Silliman, who was the real owner, calls Mel and says, like, you took one of our people. You can imagine, you know, the FU words that must have come out. Mel said, you didn't want him anyway. So I got a nice positive story. I get hired at WJFK. It's February of 1989. It's a long time ago. And I said, um, is it okay if I, you know, I don't think we can move until June. My kids are in school. My wife's teaching. So I made a deal, and Ken was fine with this. I would fly down Monday morning and go home to New Jersey on Thursday nights. And if I needed to see record people, because we played current music at JFK as well as classic rock. Um, I would meet with record people in the city on Friday, but I got to sleep home Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. So I was reasonably happy. Anyway, my wife, kids come down. We find a house in Reston, Virginia, near where Ken lives. I'm, you know, I'm fine with all this. I'm happy. This is what my new life is going to be. 
not 90 days, maybe eight, <clears throat> 89 days or the 90th day that I was there, Ken calls me in his office and says, I have good news and bad news. It's like, oh, no. You know, the station was doing fine. We just started to make a name for ourselves. Howard Stern was, we had just put him on WJFK. He'd already been obviously on K-Rock and YSP, and now they expanded it to Washington. He says, well, I guess I'll give you the good news first. They really want you in New York at K-Rock. The bad news, he says, I really want you to stay here, and I know you won't. And he was right. I mean, it was, we'd bought this house. I was able to get out of it, luckily. I thought I was going to lose a lot of money, but someone else bought it, thank goodness. And I was five minutes from selling my own house in Jersey. So kept the house, got the job at K-Rock, you know, worked with Howard Stern for, you know, four and a half years as he did the, obviously doing the morning show, and he expanded his empire. We are doing classic rock. I brought a bunch of jocks over from NEW, people that I'd work with that I and eventually hired Flo and Eddie. Right, Flo and Eddie, yeah. To do Afternoon Drive, which was both a good and a bad idea. Uh, it was a good idea. It was very creative. Bad idea because I guess they didn't get quite the ratings we wanted, but they actually didn't do as poorly as people thought. Howard didn't love him until he found out some things about Flo's sex life and, and, and uh, Eddie's sex life, and that made him a big fan of theirs, and he started inviting them to Super Bowl parties and... Uh, and then he loved them. But by then, they, they, they were kind of ready to get out of doing the daily grind of living in New York because that's not where they were, you know, where their home base really, where they were on the West Coast. Um, so Flo and Eddie, uh, and, and then eventually I hired some disc jockeys, including, I, you know, at the time, Dave Herman, who had worked for me at NEW. And you know, there's some sad stories about Dave and what had happened to him the last couple of years, but nothing like that then. He was a well-known, terrific disc jockey in New York. Pete Fornatel I brought over. There were some big names there already, Meg Griffin, uh, J- Jimmy Fink, Tony Pig. I wound up uh, hiring Allison Steele, who had worked at NEW, to do the overnights. There was Maria Melito, Ken, uh, not Ken Dasher there. He'd been at NEW. But anyway, I have the job at K-Rock, and I know I'm rambling on here, but I'm trying to get to the eventually the story. I'm at K-Rock, and then after I'd been there a few years, I uh, ran into Joel Hollander, and we just got to be chatting and Joel said, you know, I know you're over at K-Rock, but I'm maybe looking for somebody new at Fan Sports Station that had been on the air at the time for about three years, maybe close to four. I said, I love sports, and and because we, we talk sports all afternoon, and that was my other love and passion. Um, but I wasn't really ready to make a move, so he kept asking and asking and asking, and I just said, no, thank you for asking, not interested. So almost a year passes, um, and we're getting close to like 1993, and he asks me again. I said, eh, no. And then Mel calls me into his office and says, you know, rock is fine, but we really would like you to do FAN. You know, when Mel tells you that, it's kind of like maybe there's a message there. Yeah, like take this job. So uh, I did. I took the job, and I've been here since uh, early 1993. Your season-long fantasy football team may be going strong, but you don't have to wait until week 16 to get paid. Put your fantasy skills to the test every week this season at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. With one-week fantasy, there are no season-long commitments. Got an injured player? No problem. It's like a new season every week, so you're never stuck with the same players. And get this. DraftKings is crowning a new millionaire every week this season. That means you could turn your love for football into the payday of a lifetime. Just pick your players, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. That's it. Believe me, you've never experienced football like this before. 
This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code BORING to play for free with your first deposit in this Sunday's $1 million fantasy football contest where first place takes home a hundred grand. Enter BORING for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. It's Al's Boring Podcast with Al Dukes. What type of interactions did you have with the Stern Show when you worked over there? How how involved were you, or was he more of a, a somebody who kind of reported to Tom Chiasano? Um, I don't want to say Howard re- even reported to him. Howard did his own thing, but he was very inclusive. I, you know me, I come in early, and I always came in early then. So when there were guests around, I you know could say hi to them. I ran it out when Tom didn't uh, run the button and the delay. That was my job, so I did it. And Howard and I always got along, and sometimes we'd have some fun with some of the disc jockeys, whether it was Meg, whether it was Joe Mater, the Rock and Roll Madam, Pete Fornatel. I always tried to play along with that stuff. We had a funny incident, which he plays back, related to a hungerthon and some money he donated. He wanted me to have a Hitler mustache, and he had to go look at my private part in the bathroom. <laughs> I, I played along. We did this. We raised some money for charity. I got, you know, got uh, lambasted by a few people, like, how could you do that? And it was for fun. I didn't care. Howard and I always got along, and I think he'd verify that. Um, we, you know, sometimes he'd tell me funny stuff. He was always inclusive of me. Like when we did the, uh, John DeBella funeral, um, I was kind of the radio station producer for that, you know, and handled a lot of that stuff. And when they needed stuff, I was there when they wanted stuff, whether it was for on the air, off the air, you know, Howard didn't have meetings, you know, unless they were about salary that he needed, but I was involved. I, you know, I talked to Gary every day. I always knew what was going on. I was very attentive to the show. I was always there in the morning. I always asked Howard to do promos every single day, which, you know, they did. I always asked him to promote stuff, which he was always nice enough to do. Howard's rule was, um, if you tell me something and you don't want me to say it on the air, I won't. And never once did he break that. My own stupidity once or twice, I told him stuff and I didn't use those words. (laughs) And I mean, there's nothing tragic, but right. it, it would get on the air. And it's like, ah, why did I tell him? Why didn't I tell him not to say something? Right. Or you would think it didn't register in his head that it was a big exactly. deal. And then he'd repeat but it he back. But he was great about that. And really, he was supportive. And if we asked him to make some modifications to when he was doing the spots and stuff, you know, everybody said yeah, he doesn't listen. And stuff. But he did. I mean, I didn't order him around. I'm not an idiot. The guy's getting a 20 share. Why am I going to tell him what to do? Yeah, let him do what he's doing. I've always felt with talent, the people that are talented... They let them break the rules. The people that are not as talented, you know, then if there's a format, which I think will get better ratings, then let's do the format. But, you know, Howard would go on. There isn't a better storyteller out there. There isn't a guy who's got a better, like, working knowledge of how to make people listen to the radio or really for anything that he's done. And it's like, I'm going to follow what he does. I'm not going to ask other people to do what he does because they can't do it the same way. Howard wants to talk for an hour, and then we got to go play 22 minutes of commercials to make up for it. You know what? People aren't going anywhere. And he was so smart and so brilliant about stuff that he often would break in the middle of recorded spots and come back and do a live spot, which might lead to a story for 10 minutes, and then we get to more of the spots. So listeners never would run away during these long commercial breaks. The ratings never suffered. Um, And I remembered what I did ask him to do at one point was these 20 song music marathons that Andy Bloom was doing at WYSP in Philly, I said, maybe that'll be a good way to get a better transition into classic rock instead of the, you know, 29 minutes of commercials when he's done. So we, Howard would say goodbye. 
But we'd come back and we'd do the credits after we played a bunch of commercials. And then from the credits, we would then go right into a 20-song music marathon. But he would, he would kind of he would hit the CD or whatever they were on. Because I right. remember some days he wouldn't like a song, then he'd go to the next one right. to see what he liked to, to kick off. And I with. couldn't count those songs as part of the 20-song right. music marathon <laughs> because they weren't like played in, in there. So we'd have to start counting with the first full song. But yeah, he didn't like something. He, but a lot of times he didn't care. And he would just go and do it. Or sometimes he'd have Fred do it. Do you but, think that the company uh, knew of your interactions with Howard and how he did talk shows that they thought that's a good transition to go to fan where they're doing talk shows all day or it had nothing to do with that? You know, I really don't know other than that Joel was interested in having me come over and I guess Mel, I guess Joel discussed with Mel and they all thought it was a good idea. I was a little bit heartbroken in that I was going to be giving up music. But on the other hand, we had brought the Grease Man in, which turned out not to be a good decision. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was going to be a good idea. Tom really knew um, Doug Track, the Grease Man, from his days in Jacksonville, and and Doug was very talented. And he had Tom had me go down to Washington. He was on WWDC DC one hundred and one, and he did a great morning show. But he played music. There was interaction. He had a news person. He'd thump his chest for the, the trap. I mean, it was some of it was gimmicky, obviously. And we were going to put him on at night. And I said, okay, no harm. It should be good, and we'll see what happens. And we'll have bookends and maybe move him into afternoon. But the, the problem was Doug wanted to be a movie star and wanted to do the show out in L.A., and Mel said that was okay. So he was going to go to L.A., and when I said, you know, we'll play six songs an hour or something, and Doug didn't want to play music, and Mel said, here's a guy who's been getting all these ratings. I'm going to pay him whatever it was, a million dollars, and, you know, you're making 50 cents, and you're going to tell him what to do? And it's like, hmm, yeah. So the Grease Man, one of those things where it's like Mel liked them, Mel signed them, and said, you got to put them on. Somehow make it And we it put work. him on the three stations, and he came on at 6 o'clock instead of 7. He wouldn't play music. A lot of things happened, you know, so I take a lot of the blame. I mean, I tried, but it, it didn't work. Was it also hard? Because Howard, back then, Howard hated everyone that wasn't Howard you know, on the radio, so he did he not like... He hate everybody. He liked some of the disc jockeys. Like, right, he right, right. The, the, the talk loved... show guys, though, like yeah, the Grease he, Man, he didn't like. Right, and I think he felt like, well, here's a guy I pummeled in Washington. Why are we hiring him? And it's yeah. like, well, I got the best in the morning... So even if second best is at a different level, why wouldn't I want that? So in my head and Tom's head, and I guess Mel's, we all thought that was the right decision. But Doug was a great storyteller, but the stories didn't always have a great punchline. And I think without playing some music in between, it kind of conspired to not work. And plus Howard didn't like him. So at first he, you know, critiqued him. And then it's like, I'm not even going to waste my time talking about him at all. Right. So it and Doug was in LA. I was out there for the first few days and I actually convinced him to play a couple of songs so while he could tape stuff it was like a ruse. It worked mildly, but then he stopped playing music and really I came back and really we 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 may have been doing email which was probably called electronic mail then. We may have just started, but it was mostly fax. If I tell you how high the pile of faxes of and there wasn't one positive. Oh yeah. Yeah, K-Rock used to ask you to fax your requests and so I must have had really a thousand pieces of paper. And I want you to know I responded to every one of them, and most of them were very nice. And as long as I gave them an explanation, but that was the thousand who wrote, not the million people that were listening that turned the radio right. off. So that didn't really work. So now we have Howard in the morning on until about 11 o'clock or thereabouts. I've got the Greasemen not playing any music from 6 to 10 o'clock at night. The ratings, you know, 10 o'clock to 6 o'clock are not as important as the daytime. So I'm sitting there programming music from 10 in the morning until 6 in the afternoon, and 
you know, I'm not all that fulfilled. So the timing became much better when Joel was interested, and then Mel did that push, and I said, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. And what did you walk into at WFAN when you got there? So <clears throat> Imus was on in the morning. Yeah, it was Imus. They had the station had just released Ed Coleman and Dave Sims, Coleman and Soul Man, <clears throat> from doing the midday show, and was going to hire Mike Lupica and Len Berman to do midday. So I wasn't part of the decision, but, you know, this is what they said it was going to be. And I said, oh, okay, you guys know what you're doing. And, you know, Ed and Dave didn't have great ratings. Ed, we made the Mets beat reporter, which he still is, and they essentially let Dave go. I think they had probably offered him part-time, but Dave was, you know, I'm gone. I'm gone. And Dave's had a great career, mostly doing play-by-play. And I've brought him back to do stuff occasionally on anniversaries and stuff, and I'm friendly with him and, uh, and I see him occasionally, and he's in the city, and his wife does some reporting for us on health issues, His wife, Ab, Dave's wife, Abby. Anyway, um, so they're gone. Now I have Lupica and Berman coming in. We meet with them a couple of times, no issues. Uh, we're, it's the week before the show's about to start, and uh, Imus is now deciding to call Len Berman Boner Nose, which Lenny didn't take to very well, obviously. Um, I just got into some fight with uh, Mike Lupic, a guy who we had been really great friends with for a number of years. Now they not liking each other. Um, and Len and, and Mike got into some kind of a fight. And so they had been planned to do 10A to 2P together. And um, they walk in and say, we're not doing a show together. Essentially, you know, we hate each other, screw you, and we're not doing it. I'm sitting there scratching my head saying, how did I get into this? So it hadn't even started yet. It hadn't even started. They weren't on the air. So I somehow convinced them. I said, you guys got to do me a favor. The Monday that we started, in, whether it was late March, early April, I don't remember the exact date, I got them to do one show together the first day. That was it. And then day two was um, Loopy did 10 to noon and uh, Lenny did noon to two. And it just, you know... Lenny was a really good guy, and he was the best, I thought, you know, uh, sports tape head guy around. But he was so unhappy. I think he just disliked it from the start, and he kind of wanted out. Um, so we were able to – I mean, he really did not want to work there. He and Imus didn't get along. He and Lupica didn't get along. He got did fine with his producer. But at, at that point in time, I don't think he was cut out for that. He was also on the uh, on the Today Show in the morning doing some stuff for them – he did the 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock, so it was a long day. Yeah, he was busy. So it was too many things, and he just he really wanted out. We got him out in July, and then uh, Lupica and, and Imus' relationship got worse, which Lupica will also verify, and Imus will verify. It led to some real ugliness on the air a couple of times when Lupica didn't want some promo on the air because Imus was making fun of him, and I said, just just let it go, and he didn't, and Imus, you know, teed off on him, and... Then, then Loopy wanted out, and we didn't let him out until October. Had you had that experience anywhere else where you worked where there was just infighting with all on-air guys, or the, the DJs weren't really doing that? No, the DJs, I mean, some liked each other, and some they didn't wouldn't like, go at each they, other no, on the air. Yeah, and they couldn't. They really couldn't. Right, they were no, talking no about the music. to do that. Right. I mean, just whether they liked each other on the air or off the air, it really didn't matter. And when you, when you came to FAN from K-Rock and Howard Stern, <laughs> how was Imus to you when you first got here? You know what? Day one, he says, uh, uh, Howard Stern. I said, yeah. I said, I work with Howard Stern. I don't have any problems with him. He says, yep, now you work with me. So I said, okay, so 
I love Imus now. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I liked him. I wasn't a, uh, I didn't listen all the time. I knew what he was and he'd been in and out and rehabs and all this other stuff. I mean, I was attentive to that. Listen some of the time. Um, but we just started talking that first day and Imus was a runner, believe it or not. Um, cause he'll also tell you he's not the picture of health, right? but he used to run all the time. And I'm a runner, as I've told you, I run three and a half miles every day, seven days a week, been doing it for just about 25 years. Now don't miss any days, the whole story, blah, blah, blah. We just got to talking and we really hit it off uh, right away. The next day, um, I come in and stop in his office and he gives me like a, a watch and a heart monitor. And it's like, I didn't really want to use all these things. And I tried to say, I just put my watch on and I start the timer and 30 minutes later I'm done. But I mean, it was really nice that he did that. Yeah. And you know what? We got along from day one. You know, he's talented. He did a different show than Howard. I mean, he predated Howard on the air and I just broke new ground for what he did. Howard and he didn't obviously didn't get along at all. They had their own problems. And I miss would blame himself for a lot of them because I miss in the early days when Howard was at, it was at WNBC. I miss was drinking and he was on drugs and, you know, he was the, the, the king of, of radio at NBC, and here comes this new guy, Howard Stern, who now everybody's listening to, and, and I mistreated him like garbage. So, it, you know, they just really didn't get along at all. I mean, I think I mis felt bad later on about that because I don't think he hated Howard as much as Howard hated him. I mean, Howard just despised him. I mean, it, you couldn't hate anybody more in radio, I thought. Right. Um, so it was too bad, especially eventually when we started, we were the same company. Did you have any years in there when you worked with Imus where you guys would have fallings out for long periods of time? No, I, I don't think I ever had a falling out really? with Imus at all. So in he the, was always somebody who would... 1993 until 2007, we, I, I would say we never had a falling wow. out. Uh, uh, and I'll tell you, um, I respected him. He was talented. He had a great crew, whether it was Bernie, Lou, Larry, Kenny, Rob Bartlett. They were all you know, funny people. We had a couple of other people in and out on occasion. He was a riot, and the you know he did a, a great a, a great show in his office after ten o'clock as well. As a matter of fact, sometimes he could be funnier in that he can be looser and just tell funny stories. And we always talked a lot of radio because um, even though he's a little bit older than me by you know two or three hundred years, uh, but I just I was always a big fan of New York radio, and he obviously worked in New York radio, and he was I think he liked that I knew the names of all the jocks that he right. had worked with, you know. At, at WNBC, you know, and um, all the, you know, the people in New York, the Dan Ingrams of the world and the Ron Lundy's and the, and the, you know, uh, um, trying to think, Joey Reynolds and, and just all the people that, uh, that had been at NBC and stuff yeah. like that. So he was, you know, it was pretty funny. Vernon with a V. He said, how do you remember Vernon with a V? I said, yeah, unfortunately I do. And then when uh, his situation happened eight years or so ago, when when uh, right. he, he was fired, did you see that coming after those comments aired, or, or was that a? Mm. Or did it was it like a slow build? Was it did it surprise it, people? It was it was uh, yeah it was it was a little more than a slow build, but I think it surprised everybody. Look, Imus had said outrageous things before, and should he have said that on the air or even thought it? The answer is no, of course not. Um, it didn't seem like it was going to be something that was going to make him not be on the radio. Tom Bowman, who was the producer over at MSNBC, and I used to go over to MSNBC most days when Imus was over there in the morning. I just kind of wanted to be there, be of any help I could. And, you know, if there was radio TV questions, so I'd go to MSNBC and then I'd come over here after that. But um, Imus made the crack and Tom Bowman said, 
you know, I don't think that was, you know, the best thing that Imus ever said. So I said something to Imus down the line, and he kind of mildly said, in a typical Imus way, uh, yeah, I didn't mean anything by it. If you didn't like it, too bad. And it was just a typical Imus remark. But it was really, there was, it was a slow news time. There was nothing going on at all. And I don't know, one of the talk shows on one of the networks uh, played that comment or talked about the comment, and it just kind of snowballed. I heard from, uh, I think it was the National Black Caucus, and I just, I mean, I whether I was stupidly said that I don't think I meant anything by that, and he didn't. He really didn't. He just thought what he said was funny. You know, nappy-headed hoes. Okay, I mean, is it a nice thing to say? No. But, and should he have said it? No. But I don't think there was any depth to it, but it just came out wrong in discussing the Rutgers women's basketball team versus another women's basketball team. And it just kind of snowballed and got worse. And um, I don't think, you know, Imus took it seriously enough. And, and, and there were enough complaints to MSNBC and to CBS that eventually it meant that MSNBC canceled him being on. You know, they just didn't want to have that. And CBS did the same thing. So he was canceled on TV first. Yes. And then did it, how? And, there was a, and it happened during the Radiothon that year in 2007, which the timing was just truly awful. Because, you know, not that I wanted it to happen at all, because I certainly didn't, and, and spoke my piece to the higher-ups at both places, how I felt about it. Yeah. Um, and Imus had apologized, and Imus had met with Al Sharpton. We went on Al Sharpton's radio show, and I think he sandbagged Imus a bit more than he... He shouldn't have sandbagged them at all, but he did. It wasn't really right what he did, but we thought that was going to be an honest give and take there. And I just apologized, and, you know, we were going to go down to meet with um, the the Rutgers basketball team and Coach Stringer and the governor at the time, John Corzine, down at uh, in Princeton. Um, and I just had agreed to all that. He had agreed to whatever apologies were necessary, very sincere, as sincere as you could be about it. He was truly regretful about this whole thing. But it had snowballed so badly at MSNBC that I got a call from Phil Griffin, who's still running MSNBC, at 6.25 at night um, on the first day of the Radiothon, which is why I was still at the radio station, that um, they were canceling IMAS the next morning. I'm sorry, the Radiothon was going to be the next morning. It was the night before. That's why I was still at the radio station. And it was like, wait a minute, how can you do this tonight? We have to be over at MSNBC to do the show tomorrow morning. They said, well, we won't be on MSNBC, but since you have all these guests coming, you can do the show from there and just pump it back. That was about as uncomfortable a situation as we could have. And then that later that afternoon, I got a call from Mr. Moonves's assistant, and I don't remember her name, who asked if I had Imus's phone number, which I did, and I gave it to her. And then it's like, oh, my God. I'm sure Mr. Moonves wouldn't be asking for his yeah. phone number if he wasn't going to call him. He did, and I called Imus. I had a feeling, and I called Imus and got through a couple minutes later. He said, I've just been told not to do my show anymore. And that's when I actually called Mr. Moonves, and he was nice enough to speak to me, and I thought maybe he's going to fire me because, like, how could you do this? It's the middle of the radio. I thought I'm all emotional about it. And he was really sorry and, and regretful about the whole situation, wish it hadn't happened, but felt that's what he needed to do. So we continued and did the Radiothon the next morning without Imus, but I had Deirdre come in and do stuff. And Charles McCord was still there, and he did stuff. Opie and Anthony, who Imus became very friendly with, because when they were out of work, Imus was uh, apparently befriended Opie, and they were the nicest, nicest people. They asked if there's anything they could do to help, and I said, could you help promote the Radiothon? So the next morning, they did their whole show about the Radiothon. 
Were they on uh, 92.3 at that time or not no, yet? No, they were on... Like X- XM? Uh, no, they were still... They, this was... I'm, I'm trying to think if they were... They must have still been on... No, I think they were on... Uh, oh, no, they were on... They were on camera because I was still... I was programming... You were the doing free both. FM, so I was doing both. That's why how I had yeah. the relationship with them. I just had to think of the timing. So, but they were great, and they spent the whole morning on the over the air part. I don't know what they did on the XM part because I was not attentive to that. But we would raise about three million dollars a year during Radiothon. That year, we raised over four, and I really attribute that, you know, the attention of Imus not being there, plus the help that they gave me. That morning, not me, I shouldn't say that, that he gave to the Radiothon. I mean, I felt like they were really helping me by doing this. Right. But it was really to, for the cause for Tomorrow's Children's Fund and CJ Foundation. And that part was the only wonderful thing that really happened. But Imus was now out, so it was a it was a rough go there. After uh, Imus was out for all that time and he then was hired by WABC, did you ever consider going there with him? Were you ever asked to do such a thing? I was asked. In what type of role? As the program director for WABC. Oh, for the and, whole station. Yeah, and also to um, oversee, uh, for, it was Citadel was the company at the time, not Cumas, and Fareed Suleiman was the head of the company, and I had known Fareed very well because he had been first Mel's number two guy at, at Infinity, and then as Mel moved away and eventually became chairman of all of CBS, Fareed ran Infinity or ran the radio division, I should say, right. of CBS. And then eventually Fareed, for whatever his reasons, moved over to Citadel. Um, but I had spoken to him and, and some other people, and they said, you know, we have sports stations, you can do that, and some other news. And I thought about it, but I eventually, last minute, you know, said to CBS, I would, I would rather stay if we can do a few things and if you could meet a few things here. And they were nice enough to say, yes, we really do want you to stay, so... All right, that's enough for today, folks. Uh, we'll do part two next week. Part two will pick up uh, with the interview with Mark Chernoff, where they're looking for the replacement for Don Imus. That eventually becomes Boomer and Carton, as you know. And we'll talk about Chris Russo leaving Mike and the Mad Dog show. And then I also asked Mark a bunch of questions that I got from you folks there on Twitter. So part two with Mark Chernoff is coming next week. Until then, keep it nice and boring. See you.